So vaccine skepticism and vaccine hesitancy are big, big problems, and they're also really complicated. For example, there's nothing very intuitive about the idea that injecting something into your arm will help protect you from disease. So that almost certainly contributes something to people's suspicion. Welcome to Primary Sources, a podcast produced by East Tennessee State University that highlights the important research happening at ETSU. Joining us today on Primary Sources is Dr. David Harker. He is a professor of philosophy and the chair of the Department of Philosophy and Humanities at East Tennessee State University. Dr. Harker has published on a range of topics within the philosophy of science. In recent years, he has focused his research on questions concerning misinformation, human biases, and the role of special interest groups in shaping public opinion on scientific information. His 2015 book, Creating Scientific Controversies, Uncertainty and Bias in Science and Society, was published by Cambridge University Press and has received excellent reviews. One writer called it, quote, a unique and important book that addresses a topic of pressing social and political importance with great care and clarity and an excellent understanding of the relevant science. This is applied philosophy of science at its best. Dr. Harker earned a PhD in philosophy at the University of Illinois at Chicago in 2006. He has been teaching at ETSU since 2006 and in 2017 won the ETSU Distinguished Faculty Award in Research one of the highest honors a professor at ETSU can receive. Dr. Harker, thank you for being here. Thanks very much for having me. So as we begin this episode, tell us a little bit about what drew you to pursue a career in philosophy. Well, I think that like a lot of people, I stumbled into philosophy as an undergraduate without really knowing what it was. But I quickly discovered that I really liked it. Uh, Now, people enjoy philosophy for lots of different reasons. For me, it was the puzzles and the methods that preoccupied philosophers that really drew me in. So for example, philosophers often take quite familiar concepts, cast them in a slightly different light, and then show that these concepts are actually a lot more mysterious than they first appear. So concepts like truth or knowledge or or beauty can seem very familiar to us, and then philosophers show that getting a good theory or account of these concepts isn't as straightforward as as you might think. But I think because those concepts are so familiar, it can often feel as if the philosopher must have tricked us somehow. So then, as a student or a reader, uh, you can be motivated to try and figure out where that trick happened. Or in other cases, philosophers take what seem like very sensible intuitions, and then show how, in combination, these intuitions have surprising consequences. So given very reasonable assumptions, for example, it can seem to follow that we just don't have free will in the ways that we think we do. Or given other assumptions, it can appear that we all have a moral obligation to give away almost all our worldly possessions to to charities. Or given other assumptions, it can seem to follow that we don't have any moral obligations to, to future generations. So I found the puzzles that philosophers were discussing really fascinating, 
And I was also really excited by the invitation to think about these puzzles for myself and think through the different responses that others had put forward and then try to evaluate where I agreed and disagreed with others and why I agreed with them or why I disagreed with them. By the end of my undergraduate degree, I realized I hadn't had enough of philosophy, so I applied to graduate schools, and I was fortunate enough to be offered a place at UIC in Chicago. So I headed there thinking I'd immerse myself in philosophy for a few years. This also had the advantage that it bought me time to decide what I was going to do with the rest of my life. But when I got to graduate school, I discovered that everyone else in my program was planning on becoming a college professor. So I sort of caved to peer pressure and adopted that as my career goal. Thank you very much. So you have written a lot about the philosophy of science. Why that topic? Historically, philosophers have always been interested in very general questions about the nature of reality. What kinds of things exist? How do these things interact with one another? In what ways do human experiences depart from objective reality, whatever that means? So it's not altogether surprising that a lot of philosophers take a keen interest in the sciences and the conclusions that scientists have reached. In fact, there are important respects in which scientific disciplines, as we now think of them, have really just branched off from philosophy. Isaac Newton was one of history's most important scientists, but he regarded himself and he was regarded by his contemporaries as a natural philosopher. His most important book in which he uh, articulates and defends his theory of universal gravitation is called The Principles of Natural Philosophy. So the words science and scientist didn't become widely used until much later. But if you start looking to modern scientific disciplines to try and help answer these traditional philosophical questions, then some of the concerns that you confront involve the, the nature of the sciences and the reliability of the sciences. So over the last century or so, philosophers have tried to better understand just what, if anything, makes the sciences distinctive, whether science makes progress, how science makes progress, uh, whether science aims for a literally true description of reality or whether the sciences are aimed instead at theories and models that are just useful in some sense. So I think I got sucked into the philosophy of science mainly because I found these questions really interesting. Thank you. So as you know, we live in an era of vaccine skepticism. This is an area that interests you, particularly when it comes to broad public conceptions about how science and the scientific process work. Talk more about that. So vaccine skepticism and vaccine hesitancy are big, big problems, and they're also really complicated. For example, there's nothing very intuitive about the idea that injecting something into your arm will help protect you from disease. So that almost certainly contribute something to people's suspicion. Then, of course, we have to contend with all the misinformation that's circulating these days about vaccine safety. Now, some of the misinformation, at least, I think, trades on confusions about 
how science works. Perhaps most obviously, when public health officials update their advice and recommendations in light of new information, there's a tendency for people to offer this as evidence somehow that the health officials are incompetent or unreliable. There they go again, changing their minds about what we're supposed to be doing. This just shows somehow, uh, so this line of thought seems to go, that they don't really know what they're talking about. But of course, you can't make progress in any discipline without change. And when health officials are dealing with very new threats to public health, then I think we should all hope that they'll be providing the best evidence or best advice, I should say, that they can uh, relative to the evidence that they have available to them. And what we should also hope is that they're making great efforts to gather lots more data uh, and to gather much better data, uh, much more relevant data. And of course, ultimately, that once the extra more relevant data starts to flood in, then their advice for the public will be updated. So what's sometimes offered as a problem that the public health officials keep changing their mind should, I think, properly be interpreted as a, as a strength of the system and evidence that they're doing their jobs and uh, trying to uh, provide better and better advice. So it, it's interesting that philosophy is sometimes dismissed as being of little use or having little practical value because philosophers have always been really interested in trying to understand how we can justify beliefs. Part of that project involves paying really close attention to the ways in which people go wrong when they reason from evidence to conclusions. So when it comes to vaccine hesitancy, beyond what I've already mentioned, I think one of the biggest problems now is that people trust their own evaluations of the, the evidence or the, the state of our understanding. They trust themselves rather than entire communities of individuals who, of course, have collectively spent decades studying the relevant methods, evidence, and so on. And I think this tendency to place a huge amount of trust in ourselves emerges from this really troubling distortion of the idea that we should all think for ourselves. So this is advice we hear a lot, that you shouldn't just accept what others say without thinking about it for yourself. You should do your own research. Thinking for yourself is supposed to be a really important habit. It's regarded as a, an intellectual virtue, if you like. And there is, I think, no doubt that thinking for ourselves can bring really significant benefits in, in lots and lots of circumstances. But when thinking for ourselves leads us to ignore the genuine experts and dismiss their advice and then embrace only what the, the con artists and the, the charlatans are espousing, then something's clearly gone badly wrong and, and it's really worrying. That's fascinating. Thank you. Do you have any research that you're working on now that you'd like to share? So some of the puzzles that I've been really fascinated with for the last few years, and puzzles which I think have important applications when thinking about misinformation generally, these puzzles concern what philosophers called higher-order evidence. 
So this term higher order evidence gets used in a few different ways, but most commonly higher order evidence refers to evidence about an individual's ability to evaluate the sort of ordinary evidence, if you like. So suppose you're trying to understand a really complicated scientific idea, but you're in a really noisy bar, or maybe you're really tired, uh, or maybe there's something distracting in the background. The presence of these external factors might all be evidence that you're not currently well positioned to evaluate the other evidence well. So in other words, sometimes we have evidence that we're not well positioned to evaluate other evidence. And this can be related to biases and it can be related to expertise. So sometimes we're in circumstances and we might suspect that we're not going to be as objective as other people because we're aware that we have a stake in the game. We're aware of our predilections, our, our biases. So higher order evidence, I think, is this really interesting concept. And philosophers have, have typically worried about how we're supposed to integrate higher order evidence with other kinds of evidence in ways that would maximize rationality. To try and uh, give another example, suppose you're watching a, a sports match and you suspect that the referee or umpire makes, makes a bad call. You might be rooting for one of these teams in a way that you suspect could be compromising the reliability or objectivity of your judgment. So on the one hand, it can seem to you like it's just clear that the referee got it wrong. On the other hand, you're aware that you might not be the most objective observer and that your biases might be influencing how you interpret this, this call. So you've got your evidence on the one hand, what you're seeing uh, on the replays, what you're seeing happened on the field of play. On the other hand, there's this higher order evidence that concerns your own objectivity. And so the question for the philosopher is how do you integrate those two kinds of evidence to figure out what's the rational thing to believe or think in those kinds of cases. Now, I think those puzzles are great and important, but I think the problem surrounding higher order evidence can also motivate this idea that our own perspectives on issues are very often restricted in ways that we're just quite helpless to, to overcome. And I think this has really important implications for how we think about the influence of misinformation. So a lot of what I think about now in my research is trying to work through the implications if, of this idea that it's hard to respond well to evidence that I'm not always well positioned to evaluate sensibly other kinds of evidence or, or evidence surrounding particular issues and then trying to understand how this informs our attitudes towards misinformation. So as we wrap up this episode, let's talk a little bit about, for you, what comes next for philosophers. I know that not long after you became chair of the department here at ETSU, you said that it was becoming pretty increasingly clear that the general public needs to get better at listening to those on the other side of issues. 
How can professors and researchers like yourself help with that? Right, that's a great question. So I think for researchers in general, there's a lot to discover about why people reason in the ways that they do. There's a lot to find out about what kinds of interventions will be more or less effective at directing individuals towards more reasonable judgments. And so what kinds of interventions will, will lead to better decision-making by individuals and, and groups? I think for philosophers, there are really exciting, pressing questions about how we should think about concepts like evidence and reason, belief and knowledge, how we should think about concepts like these in an age of hyper-specialization when knowledge is distributed over huge groups of people and people's skills vary enormously such that their capacity for evaluating evidence in certain cases can be radically different. So I think if we can get clearer on, on some of these issues and concepts, then that will facilitate better listening. We'll get better at listening to, to others if we better understand those, those issues. Now, I think as teachers, we clearly have opportunities to help students in ways that can elevate the, the quality of public discourse, if you like. And partly this has to involve recognizing that providing people with more information often just isn't enough. A natural sort of response to an awareness that other people are uh, misinformed is just to try and bombard them with more, more facts, give them more information, more, more evidence. But on, on lots of issues, climate change, vaccines, biological evolution maybe being the most conspicuous examples, on lots of issues we know that we can provide people with lots and lots of salient evidence and we can offer really cogent arguments, but they're often going to dismiss it all if they regard these conclusions as, in some sense, threatening to their own, their own identity, their own sense of self, or if perhaps subconsciously people suspect that their peers and their community members would disapprove if they were to come out in support of certain ideas. So in light of this, I think we have to try and meet students where they're at. We have to try and build trust. And we have to try and make it clear that our job as educators is to present the current state of, of understanding as best we can. And our job is also to help students become better informed which might sometimes involve trying to change their minds in ways that they don't find easy. But if we can model good behavior in the classroom and model good behavior in interactions with students by being respectful, while also insisting that some conclusions just are better supported by available evidence, whether everyone wants to admit that or not, then I think in these ways we can do a lot of good. And 
In some ways, I think this relates back to what I was saying earlier about thinking for ourselves. I certainly want students to, to think for themselves, but I want them to think in particular for themselves about whether they're trusting the right people for information on important topics and whether I want them to think for themselves about whether they're forming judgments in, in reliable ways. Dr. Harker, thank you for being here. Thanks again for, for having me. It's uh, been really great talking. Thank you for listening to Primary Sources. Our theme music was created by students of Martin Walters, a member of ETSU's Department of Music. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with friends and colleagues.